Hi, I'm Rasha, and this is Policy Talks. Welcome to Policy Talks, a show focused on policy analysis in international affairs. In this episode, we explore the recent increase in chemical weapon attacks around the world and their impact on the rules-based order of international affairs. A prohibition on the use of chemical weapons has been a long-accepted norm in international relations. However, recent attacks have placed pressure on this notion. The Assad government in Syria started to use chemical weapons on their citizens to combat insurgent fighters in 2013. This prompted a U.S.-led response through airstrikes by the Trump administration in April this year. On February 13, 2017, Kim Jong-nam, the older half-brother of North Korean leader Kim Jong-un, was poisoned at Kuala Lumpur Airport with a massive dose of a nerve agent by two North Korean assassins. On March 4, 2018, Sergei Skripal was attacked with the use of a nerve agent in Salisbury. He was a Russian ex-military intelligence officer and double agent for UK intelligence. 22 other people had to be checked for symptoms and treated, including Skripal's daughter. The legal tradition behind the prohibition of chemical weapons is deep and one of the oldest areas of international law. In fact, it even predates the First World War. Violation of these rules can be said to bring up questions about fundamental aspects of international law. However, the recent use of chemical weapons does not only place pressure on the international legal framework, but it also places pressure on state relations as rogue states seem to see the use of these weapons as more and more legitimate. To gain more insight into the implications of these recent uses of chemical weapons, I spoke with Dr. Jez Littlewood. Dr. Littlewood is an assistant professor at the Norman Patterson School of International Affairs. His research interests include proliferation and counter-proliferation of weapons of mass destruction, terrorism and counter-terrorism, international security, as well as intelligence. He previously served as an advisor to the Counter-Proliferation Department of the UK Foreign and Commonwealth Office, the United Nations Department for Disarmament Affairs, and with the British Armed Forces. Welcome to Policy Talks, Professor Littlewood. We're very grateful that you were able to join us. As you know, um, our, our conversation topic is really about chemical weapons. And the first question I'd like to start us off with is, despite leading to the same number of civilian casualties, and this is of no news to any of us who have been following this issue, how would you say chemical weapons are viewed differently in comparison to conventional weapons? I think it's it's a great question, and it's actually one of the hardest questions to answer in terms of why are chemical weapons viewed with such sort of horror and opprobrium by the international community, by the media, whereas conventional weapons, and we know this worldwide as well as particularly in the Syrian conflict, have killed thousands of more people um, than chemical weapons have. So that takes us back to understanding how sort of uh, norms and normative constraints are kind of constructed mm-hmm. um, by the international community. And and the use of a kind of a construction is they are made, they're partly social as well as technological. And it, that has longer roots in history in terms of ideas about the use of poison as a weapon is viewed as, as wrong. 
Um, now, the reason for why it, in one sense, is is wrong or illegitimate uh, varies over sort of different culture and different time periods. Um, but essentially, it really begins to take root in kind of legal realms. From the sort of mid-1800s, we see it uh, in the sort of the peace conventions and the hate conventions in the late sort of 19th century, early 20th century. But ultimately, it's the extensive use of chemical weapons in, in World War I on the European battlefront that led to public appropriation and public pushback against weapons which were considered inhumane um, uh, because of their effects on military blindness, choking, etc., um, and this ultimately gave rise to what is the 1925 Geneva Protocol. And the protocol bans the use of chemical and biological weapons in warfare between states. And as such, that has become customary international law. So it's binding on all states whether they've joined it or not. Um, and ultimately, once we get through World War II, where we did not see chemical weapons use in the European theater, but we did see chemical weapons use, some chemical weapons use in, in sort of China, uh, predominantly by sort of Japan. Um, and ultimately, we see the sort of arms control in the Cold War period. Finally, at the end of the Cold War, we get a ban on chemical weapons uh, achieved by the international community. And this is the 1993 Chemical Weapons Convention. And so for a variety of sort of uh, historical reasons, the use in conflict and sort of legal norms and norms of behavior created by states over the last hundred years, chemical weapons are viewed as illegitimate. And that's despite the fact that conventional weapons kill far more people, um, they still have this special place, if you like, within, within, within law and within norms uh, that any use of chemical weapons is considered a sort of uh, a, essentially what is now a crime against humanity. So you touched on how chemical weapons have been restricted and the norms, protocols, and conventions that have been established around them. Could you elaborate more on the consequences of these norms and conventions being violated? That's true. And that's, you know, you're sort of jumping into the, probably the second hardest question relating to essentially arms control, as particularly as it relates to chemical weapons. And so <clears throat> if we think about an arms control treaty, the Chemical Weapons Convention in this context, um, that's an example of what we think about as cooperative security. So different states come together and they agree on certain practices being permitted or certain practices being prohibited. And so here in this context, <clears throat> the, the production, the development, the stockpiling and the use of chemical weapons, the international community under the, under the CWC, the Chemical Weapons Convention, has decided that essentially we would like to see a world free of chemical weapons. Um, but because it's a cooperative security agreement, ultimately it depends on the cooperation of all the parties involved in it, fundamentally the states. And so they have to, in one sense, uh, give effect to their legal obligations in law through a series of sort of national implementation agreements. And for the vast majority of states who join a treaty, they're going to abide by the treaty. They don't intend to violate it. Um, but because it's a treaty... You essentially can't force another state into a treaty. It can happen if it's a defeated power after war. Uh, but normally, in the chemical weapons context, there are currently four states outside the CWC. Um, they are Egypt, North Korea, Israel, and South Sudan. 
Um, and Syria was outside uh, the CWC ultimately until 2013, uh, which following the use of chemical weapons in, in Damascus in the Ghouta region in August, uh, was sort of uh, persuaded, essentially arm-twisted by both Russia and the United States to uh, join the CWC. But then the consequences if a country violates it um, ultimately rests on uh, other states' parties deciding to do something about it. So in, in the CWC context, the organization which essentially runs the CWC on behalf, the international organization, is called the OPCW, the Organization for the Prohibition of Chemical Weapons. And within the treaty, there are sort of uh, laid out rules and procedures in terms of if a country is in non-compliance, what can happen. But for serious incidents, essentially, the OPCW passes them to the United Nations Security Council, which again is standard practice in arms control regimes. And ultimately, then you're dependent on the United Nations Security Council deciding what to do. And as we all know from history, that if the Security Council, particularly the P5, uh, are divided among themselves about what to do, um, then in reality, uh, not much happens in the immediate context of a violation. Uh, and so in some respects, there's a lot of uh, criticism about the CWC, the OPCW, and the Security Council that Syria has been able to get away with the use of chemical weapons. And that criticism is valid. And at face value, I would certainly say it is correct. Taking a, a sort of a medium to longer term view, however, I wouldn't necessarily say that means we should abandon or uh, in one sense denigrate the CWC because there are other ways which people and states can ultimately begin to deal with this. Um, and those are ongoing in the international context, although it is fair and it, it is fair to note that Syria is currently using chemical weapons or has been known to use chemical weapons uh, with relative impunity. We'll have more with Dr. Littlewood after a quick break. You're listening to Policy Talks Podcast in partnership with iAffairs Canada, recorded at CKCU 93.1 FM. For more, please go to www.policytalkspodcast.com. This evening, I have authorised British armed forces to conduct coordinated and targeted strikes to degrade the Syrian regime's chemical weapons capability and deter their use. We are acting together with our American and French allies. We have sought to use every possible diplomatic channel to achieve this. But our efforts have been repeatedly thwarted. Even this week, the Russians vetoed a resolution at the UN Security Council, which would have established an independent investigation into the Duma attack. So there is no practicable alternative to the use of force to degrade and deter the use of chemical weapons by the Syrian regime. This is not about intervening in a civil war. It is not about regime change. It is about a limited and targeted strike that does not further escalate tensions in the region and that does everything possible to prevent civilian casualties. 
And while this action is specifically about deterring the Syrian regime, it will also send a clear signal to anyone else who believes they can use chemical weapons with impunity. That was British Prime Minister Theresa May issuing a statement to the British people. In her statement, she explains her decision to intervene in Syria in response to attacks using chemical weapons. Prime Minister May asserts this action was taken as a last resort as she deemed it necessary to protect the British people and preserve the global order. Dr. Littlewood answered a few questions about some of the implications of the use of chemical weapons and their impact on international relations. So I note that Syria is a part of the CWC, as you mentioned. Um, North Korea is not part of the CWC, but Russia is. Mm -hmm. And so for those two contexts, those two states, what can we take away from the same willingness to use chemical weapons by both the Russians and North Koreans in assassination attempts? It's, again, a sort of good question. And I, I think we equally have to, we go, we go back to partly to the, the, the preamble of the C, CWC itself. Uh, and the broader objective of the international community there is, is this world free of chemical weapons. Um, but then we run into the challenge of um, if a chemical weapon is used, whether it's for assassination in our cases here with North Korea and, and alleged Russia, I'll be careful with my words legally here, um, alleged Russia, um, then it comes down to the sort of, the, the, there are a few steps which need to be, which need to be borne, in, borne in mind here. The first is a conclusive determination that it was an actual chemical weapon that was used. And in both cases, both the North Korean uh, or the alleged North Korean use against um, Kim Jong-nan in, in the Malaysian airport in early, to, mid, early 2017, and in the United Kingdom against uh, uh, Skripal and his daughter Ulia in, in March of this year, um, essentially the international, well, in the North Korean case, the community has decided it was North Korea. It. Um, but North Korea is not a party to the CWC, and so there's limits to what can happen in that context. Um, in the Russian context, um, the United Kingdom has been very vocal and vociferous in pushing back against Russia. The United States and key allies of the United Kingdom, predominantly in NATO and the European Union, have sort of agreed that it, it looks to be Russia that did it. Um, but there's no, we have to be clear here in, in law, we don't yet have legal definite proof that it was Russia. Although looking at the evidence, certainly as I'm looking at it as it unfolds, the finger points to Russia has some serious questions to answer here. Because ultimately, as you said, Russia is a party to the CWC, and therefore all chemical weapons for all purposes are prohibited to it. So if it did either maintain some form of stockpile for assassinations, or it lost control of some of its... Um, chemical weapons which it uses to test for defensive purposes, which is legitimate and legal under the treaty, if it lost control of certain stocks, then again, there are still some questions around that that Russia needs to answer. So I note that there are a lot of nations that are part of the CWC. It's quite remarkable. It's only four nations that are, that are not taking part. So would you say that there is a division then between states on the acceptability of chemical weapons and their use? even though there's so many that are part of the CWC? 
I don't think there's a, a divisibility or a division here. Um, states really no longer admit to having chemical weapons. Um, so if we look at the states that are outside it, South Sudan is a fairly new country, I think five or six years from memory. No one's overly concerned about what South Sudan is doing, and in, and in, you know, and, and it has far, the the challenge for South Sudan is about you know state capacity and not state failure. So, in a chemical weapons com context, we're not really worried about South Sudan. Um, the other three pose different kinds of problems. So, working with them, Egypt um, is known uh, and is one of the few com confirmed cases known to have used chemical weapons um, in the late 1960s in what was the Yemeni civil war at that point in time. And so we certainly know and we would expect to find a past program involving Egypt. Whether it has a current program, no one's quite sure in the public domain. Um, but Egypt is opposed to the joining the Chemical Weapons Convention, um, predominantly because of what is what is Israel's nuclear weapons capability. Um, and Israel's view is there should be a weapons of mass destruction-free zone in the Middle East, and then until that time, Egypt will not join the CWC. Israel actually signed the CWC, but did not then ratify the treaty domestically. So it's not in force for Israel. But by signature, Israel, under international law and the law of treaties, um, basically cannot do anything which, in one sense, would violate the, the obligations of the treaty. Now, there's even less known about past Israeli chemical weapons uh, activity, um, although the literature points to at least a suspicion of a program, uh, which was probably there for retaliation in kind, given the known existence of Syria's program and what we know about past Egyptian programs. Um, but we really don't know too much about um, Israel at this point in time. The North Koreans are a different way uh, again. Um, we don't know for sure, but the open source literature points to a stockpile of chemical weapons of between 2,500 to about 5,000 tons. So that's quite extensive. Whether or not the North Korean CW program will be dealt with in any upcoming summit that deals with their nuclear weapons program remains to be seen. To conclude our conversation and noting you know, the differences of how chemical weapons are viewed in, in certain contexts and, and, and all the norms and conventions and protocols that have been internationally established. Would you say that there is a breakdown to the rule-based order around chemical weapons and their use? I, I don't think there is yet a breakdown, but I certainly see that the, the, the norm and the law is under significant pressure at this point in time. Uh, I mean, just earlier this year, uh, Canada's representative to the OPCW uh, did say in a statement that with the continued use of chemical weapons in Syria, with the, with the case in, in Malaysia linked to North Korea earlier this year, with the case in the United Kingdom suspected to be Russia earlier this year, um, they noted quite openly that you know, the, w the international community is beginning to wonder, is the Chemical Weapons Convention, can it actually uphold itself? Can states' parties uphold what is international law? Um, I, my view is that, yes, they probably can for a couple of reasons. The first is um, that while we should be very concerned about the continued use of chemical weapons and the failure to bring their per the perpetrators of such use to account, um, that doesn't mean that the rest of the international community is going to abandon the CWC. Okay, so we can think about this in, like, in a similar way to human rights violations. 
there are human rights violations on a daily basis across the world. That doesn't mean to say that we're going to give up on human rights in various countries. Um, and so in one sense, there is a division, there's a fracture and there's a weakening, which, which, is, which is fundamentally very bad for the CWC, ultimately bad for the legal order as well. But I don't anticipate we're going to see a significant complete breakdown. More importantly, I don't think we will see states en masse walk away from the Chemical Weapons Convention and suddenly decide in the next few years, chemical weapons are okay, we're essentially going to start using them in conflict. Um, so while there are legitimate concerns, we need to be a little bit more balanced in terms of thinking through this in terms of, okay, what does it mean in practice? Ultimately, I think, and I very much hope, uh, that once a, some form of resolution is given to the Syrian conflict, which is, of course, the priority given the number of deaths in a conventional context. Um, once, there is that, once there is that resolution, we will get a much greater understanding of the actual decisions and the perpetrators of the use of chemical weapons in that conflict. And ultimately, I suspect that key individuals will, in fact, be, be brought to account through an international justice system. But I recognize that is probably you know, a number of years away, even at this point in time. On that note, Professor Littlewood, I would like to thank you very much for joining us today on Policy Talks. You've certainly given us a lot of food for thought and excellent commentary on an issue that is very current and very relevant and developing as we move forward. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Policy Talks. Remember to visit us at policytalkspodcast.com and on Twitter at policytalkspod for updates and related content. This episode was made possible thanks to the support of the Carleton University Graduate Students Association. The GSA represents the collective interests and promotes the general welfare of the graduate students of Carleton University. They offer a suite of resources and services to help graduate students make the most of their school experience. You can visit their website at gsacarleton.ca to learn more. We also thank our partners at iAffairs Canada, an online media hub produced by students at the Norman Patterson School of International Affairs at Carleton University. Please visit them at iaffairscanada.com to learn more. I'd also like to acknowledge the hard work of our production team, Mark Hyken, Kenneth Boddy, and Joe Venkatesh. Until next time, I'm Rasha, and this is Policy Talks. <laughs>